Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at Audible, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide range of genres. And right now you can get a free audiobook with a free 30-day trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. You need to spell it out in the traditional manner, audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a special deal for listeners of this program, a free audiobook. That's a good deal. You can listen to one on your way to work. You can listen to one while grocery shopping. Uh, of course, you should listen to it after you have finished listening to this program. Audibletrial.com slash other people. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is happening all over again. This is essentially one big art project. How are you? Hello, I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for tuning in. It's good to be with you. I have a great show for you today. Uh, Hannah Petard is my guest. Her latest novel is called Reunion, and it is available from Grand Central Publishing. Uh, I had a really, really good time talking with her. She's a character, and uh, you're going to hear from her in just a moment. Uh, I don't have too much to say here at the top of the show. It's been slow around here, as it sometimes is. I've been concerned about wheat. I went into the like an internet wormhole earlier today reading about wheat trying to decide if wheat is bad for me. This shit drives me crazy. Everything's bad for you, depending on where you go. I'm tired of it. I'm eating wheat. I don't have celiac disease. It's okay. I also, uh, I saw some movies for the first time in a long time. I did do that. I went to see Gone Girl, and I saw uh, Birdman. And I admired, like, I came away sort of unmoved. I, I admired both movies. Like, it was like, oh, I admire that movie. I don't really love it. I'm not emotionally moved by it. Uh, maybe I'm dead inside. 
Maybe I was just having one of those days where nothing uh, could get through. That does happen. I'm a big believer in uh, the mood of the reviewer. You know what I'm saying? That has something to do with it. I'm not trying to make a definitive judgment here. I'm just telling you what my experience was. I admired but did not love both movies. Uh, You know, Birdman, a little pretentious, a little bit inside baseball with the actor thing. It's about actors. I thought Michael Keaton was terrific. He's a good actor. It's good to see him. The direction, uh, really good. A lot of moving camera. You know, there's a certain magical realism to it. I get it. Edward Norton, good. Emma Stone, really good. I, you know, they all did a good job, but I just wasn't, I didn't really connect. There were certain things in it where I was like, eh. I guess you can say that about almost anything, but you know, I just, it didn't change my temperature. I didn't, I didn't walk out feeling, uh, the feeling that I feel when I see a movie that really gets me. And then Gone Girl, uh, I was surprised by how silly it was. I haven't read the book. I'm, I'm obviously aware of the book. I'm always behind on this stuff. I know that might sound strange coming from a guy who does a literary podcast, but I'm very rarely in step with what everybody's reading. I almost never have read those books. <laughs> um, in fact, I almost run away. When everyone's reading a book, I immediately turn the other direction. Just re- I don't know what that is. I lose interest. But I went to the movie, and I was just surprised by how silly the story was. It's a goofy story. It's absurd. Uh, What else can you say? I mean, I don't want to spoil it for people who have no uh, context, but I feel like everybody but me has read that book, and most of you probably saw the movie weeks ago. But, you know, I I thought, again, there, there was a lot to admire. I thought the first half of the movie in particular really was gripping. I thought the performances were uh, excellent. David Fincher great director. His movies always look uh, really wonderful on screen. And uh, I got to see Ben Affleck's penis for a microsecond. That's interesting. Male full frontal. It wasn't even full frontal. It was a uh, silhouette. It was a profile. (laughs) And uh, he looks like he's pretty well hung. It's kind of jealous. But I just, I guess what, what, uh, you know, kind of baffled me about it was this goofy thing, you know, the goofy thing. It ends goofy. It's a silly story. It really is. It's unbelie- It's unbelievable. Unhyphen believable. At least to me. Or, or maybe that was just the movie. Maybe the book, uh, the, deliver is, uh, the delivery is different. I, I guess I sort of went into it thinking, oh, this is like a Truman Capote-ish, in cold blood-ish kind of story, as opposed to something more playful and uh, silly. And I guess I was just uh, left the theater thinking, okay, so this is the book that sold a bajillion copies. Like, this is what people want. You know, there was the writer in me like, okay, this is what the uh, audience likes. People connected to this. People went crazy for this. It spread like wildfire through the population. It, it, uh, it captured the cultural imagination or whatever. So, uh, you know, that's my take. Worth seeing, I guess. A lot of people seem to like the, you know, love these movies. Could could just be me. Otherwise, uh, nothing much. Went to my daughter's soccer game. Went to some kid birthday parties. 
Can't wait for that shit to end. Gotta do it. Try to avoid it. Gotta do it. Saw some friends. Had some fun. Had some nice conversations. It wasn't all terrible. Anna and Elsa were there from Frozen. My daughter thought it was fun. There was a bouncy castle. That sort of shit. So, that's it. That's what's uh, that's what's been happening. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So let's get on with it. Hannah Petard is the guest. Her book, uh, a novel out there now from Grand Central Publishing is called Reunion. Uh, Such a good time talking with her. And uh, I know you guys are going to enjoy hearing from her. So uh, this is Hannah Petard, and her novel, Once More, is called Reunion. I am in Lexington, Kentucky. I'm on the 12th floor of something called Patterson Office Tower in uh, the heart of the University of Kentucky's campus. Um, I'm sitting in the office that I've occupied for the last, since July, since July 1st, um, I've got four enormous bookshelves crammed with books and a lot of photographs that I haven't put on the wall yet. That's where I am. Okay. And I want to say, too, speaking of photographs of you involving books, uh, on your website, there's this really gorgeous photograph of you sitting in what I think is your office. Is that your office? That, okay, this is heartbreaking. That is my office, um, my home office in Chicago, Illinois, in the best apartment that I have ever lived in. And I no longer, I'm no longer in that office, but I have that photograph and it's going to stay on the website. Um, I, I have an equally neat, totally different home office now. And in fact, we have a wall of books that rivals anything we've had before. So I love my new home office. I love my new library at home, but uh, I don't, I don't think I will ever truly rival that, that, that wonderful place that I had to write when I was living in Chicago. Yeah. I mean, I just made me feel really bad about my own sense of (laughs) Did you decorate that yourself? I did, and I had to fight. I had to fight to put those um, photographs on the wall in the way that we did. I know for for people who haven't looked at the website, well, this will be incentive to go do that. But um, there's there's a giant map of the Bahamas that belongs to my husband, and he really wanted to put that in a sort of more communal place like the kitchen, and I, I really wanted it there. And then we had a couple paintings by a friend's father that he also wanted in a more communal spot, but 
I required them near me. So I, I fought for that wall. And I think we were both really happy once, once it came together, but he was, he was definitely skeptical as that room was being built. God, I would, I would hire you to decorate my place. I mean, it's just looks, <laughs> it looks fantastic. And there's like an old, there's like an old typewriter people listening. You should go check out Hannah's website so you can see this photo. It will, it will make you jealous. That typewriter, that typewriter belonged to, it was given to me by my mother. It belonged to her father, um, and he used it back when he had a restaurant. I think the restaurant was in Minnesota called Stan's Eat Shop, and he used to type up the menu every morning on that. I, I cannot, I, I can't use a typewriter to type, but it, it is very meaningful to me, and I love that I, I get to have that still. Wow. I was going to ask you, did you ever go through like a really pretentious typewriter phase? I, I went through a, I went through a pretentious typewriter phase when I was in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, which is the right time to get that out of your system because it's not like you're writing anything that's halfway decent at that time anyway. Um, and usually poems, the occasional, you know, full page story that was, it, it usually starred um, like a, a girl, a really insecure girl who people should just notice more often basically me in third person um was the star of those poems and those stories and uh i and what i don't like about typewriters and and i would use them i think if if it weren't for a the noise and i have a colleague at uh, the university of kentucky who i really really like but he will actually leave his door open to his office and type on his typewriter and i find it the most annoying thing and then b it's, I am very slow on a typewriter, and I know that there are people who are quick, but I'm fast on a computer, and I like that my hands can kind of keep up with my brain, right. but I can't do it on a typewriter. Yeah, I what about you? Did you ever go through that? Oh, yeah. Like 22, I was getting out. I remember I was getting out of college, and uh, I was you know, wanting to be a writer, and uh, my, <laughs> my dad was like, you know, I'll get you a laptop, or you know, I forget what it was even out back then, but uh, I was like, no, I want an electric typewriter. And he thought I was crazy. And I got the thing and used it for about three months and was like, this is too much work. And then through I So that's crazy because I asked my mom, um, gosh, I wasn't even 22. I was 25 or 26. I asked for one of those IBM electric typewriters because I thought that the keys were, were stationed differently so that I would be able to type as quickly. The, I think it was the IBM Electrolux, and it weighs like 500 pounds. Um, I think I used it once. Yeah, no, it's a pain. And and I used to I was telling myself like I like the the sound of the you know the keys slapping because there's something musical about writing and you know all that stuff and uh, it, that quickly went by the wayside once I started changing ribbons and using whiteout. <laughs> I the the ribbons the ribbons are the worst. There's there's this app and I don't I don't want to at all be an advertisement for an app but there's this Tom Hanks app called the Hanks Writer. Yeah, I heard and. About it. I've played with it. I've played with it, and it makes a really satisfying sound. But I have found that when I use it, I I will literally I know how to type and type really quickly using surprisingly I think not all ten of my fingers, maybe nine of them are actually actively engaged in the process. But when I play with this app, I will just type nonsense because it's so much fun to listen to. So now I know the noise of the typewriter definitely doesn't help me because I like it so much that I'm not thinking about anything except this is so pretty to listen to. <laughs> yeah, it gives you like, I think it gives you the illusion of uh, progress or something. <laughs> yeah, blah, 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 yeah. blah. <laughs> the, more, the more noise you make, the better the writing is going to be somehow. <laughs> but uh okay so typewriter phase sixth seventh eighth grade the fact that you had a typewriter phase at that age means that you probably got started in this racket um young like or at least you were pointed in this direction from a young age 
always pointed in the direction pretty young. I, I always loved to read. I didn't love to read as much as um, as I pretended when I was when I was little. My brother and my sister were avid readers, and they were really fast. And I was a really slow reader. But I knew, and this this will tell you a little bit what kind of house I grew up in. Reading was really cool, and we got books for gifts. And so I knew reading was cool because my older brother and my sister were cool, and they were actually cool at school and inside the house. So I really wanted to be like them, but they loved it. Like they could, they could sit after dinner and um, read books. And I was four years younger than my sister, six years younger than my brother. And to be honest, I so just wanted to watch Gem or something like that on television, but I never did because I wanted to impress them. And so I'd sit there and um, I think I, I used to fake read a lot. And I would even ask for, you know, really books that I knew were provocative and interesting. My mom gave me Lady Chatterley's Lover in eighth grade. Um, and by then I'd stopped fake reading and actually started loving it. But but there was there was an artifice to it. Um, well, but wanna, like I said, I, so, I, I, yeah. I want to ask you because you said that your house it was cool in your house to read. Uh, yeah. How did your parents pull that off? My mom read to us. Um, there were three of us growing up and my mom read to us every single night before we went to bed. And obviously I, I, I understand now she was probably doing it to teach us how to read, you know, she'd read and then we'd read something, but that lasted until she would read to me. Um, not every night by the time I was in eighth grade, but she was still reading to me every night, every night until sixth grade. And then probably once a week in seventh and eighth grade. And I just loved it. It was, it was such an amazing experience. And, and we all, when we were little, we'd all read the same thing together. We'd uh, shoot, we would sit and listen to her read the James Harriet books um, or the, or wind in the willows. That was another um, book that we, we would get to read sort of collectively with her. And then as we got older, you know, my brother would get um, the Hardy boys and my sister would get something else and I'd be getting Ramona. Um, sure. So it was just, it, it was, it was like this wonderful one-on-one -on -one time that we had with her and it was never, we, I don't, we never thought to challenge it. It was always like, it was the highlight of a day. It was the highlight of a night. And even when friends came over um, to spend the night, they would sit and totally participate in this process. Your mom must've been a good reader. Like, I mean, like she a, was, a good performer of the written word, right? She was a really good performer. There's a, in in the Wind in the Willows. I think that's where the the saltwater tea comes from. There's one of the character cries saltwater tea or saltwater tears into his little teacup. And my mom used to do this voice, and she would start crying. And the dogs. We we grew up with big Bernese Mountain dogs, and at one point we had three of them. And whenever my mom would do the saltwater tears, the dogs would come and surround her as though she was really crying. She was she was a great reader. Still is. She's still a good reader wow bernie burmese mountain is it bernese or burmese with an n yeah with an n it's a, great people dogs. like to say it with an m but they are good dogs they're super dumb and so loving yeah they're perfect <laughs> just complete fools but uh, yeah i used to live next to one i loved it it was a big it was named bear it's the and oh they're bear is a great name yeah they're gigantic uh and having three of them in one house with three kids like that's a busy household and they were indoor dogs. They, these these were really spoiled, rotten dogs. Um, but we've we've always had dogs, different kinds. But yeah, they were they were really really good dogs. But I started I started writing young, um, and and the writing was not was never 
an artifice. That was never a lie in the way that reading, I think, you know, it was practiced. And then I really fell in love with it without realizing that it had happened. But writing, I just naturally gravitated towards in part because um, I was not as socially savvy as my brother and sister were when I was little. I think because they were so popular and it seemed so easy. And I'm sure they both had like major struggles, but to me, it seemed so easy. And so I didn't even know how to compete with that. And um, I was really, really shy growing up, very introverted. I had a ton of opinions. Um, you know, I, I felt like I was owed more attention than I got, but I kept it to myself and probably seemed really standoffish to most people. Um, but as a result, I spent a lot of time with just me and a piece of paper and a pen and later a computer. Okay. And like, uh, and where did you grow up? I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia for, I was born in Atlanta and I went to school there for a little while. And my parents, my biological father and mother, um, to save their marriage when I was about five, they moved to a, re- a, a really rural area of Georgia, about an hour and a half outside Atlanta, this place called Canton. And we lived on a farm there for about one year for them to really discover how much they hated each other. Um, and, and then and then they got divorced and we moved back to Atlanta. And then there was there was a six, seven, eight year custody battle. Um, my brother got out of it by pretty quickly by going to Marine military Academy. I'm, I'm saying he got out of it. He was, he was kicked out of high school and he ended up going to Marine military, military Academy and that totally like knocked him into shape. Um, and then my sister got out of the custody battle by going to boarding school in ninth grade. And so that left me there the longest from about six to 13, um, with four solid years by myself of going back and forth between these two houses and going to psychologists and psychiatrists and going to the court once a month, talking to judges, you know, once every two months, talking to lawyers. And so when I saw my sister go to boarding school, I knew that that was the choice that I was going to make as well. So I went to boarding school in ninth grade, and that's when when I left Atlanta and went to Massachusetts for school. My mother and her husband left Atlanta as well, and they moved to Maryland. And so, and then my father stayed for several more years in Atlanta. So Atlanta's where I'm from. I feel like Maryland and Virginia, I really identify as a place that I became, I became a human being. And then Massachusetts is just like, you know, this place that I spent um, the, the weirdo high school years. So, okay. So what boarding school, what was this like? You leave this kind of, uh, you know, troubled situation, the family situation back in Atlanta, you go up to Massachusetts. <laughs> uh, it, like, was it an easy transition? Cause I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole boarding school thing. Like, does it, it, was not an easy transition. It was Deerfield Academy, and and I, I got the education of my life at this place. It was rigorous. It was nothing like I I I was prepared for or knew, having um, you know spent middle school in Atlanta, which is not to say there aren't good schools down there. But um, I had I think I had this fantasy of what it would be like. I'd spent several nights with my sister at her boarding school, which was a totally different one in Massachusetts, um, St. Mark's, and again she was so popular and those few overnights that I did with her were just so much fun. And it seemed, I, I, I think my belief was if you go to boarding school, if I, if Hannah goes to boarding school, 
all of these things that were not natural to me or innate to me would suddenly just like be given to me. I assumed that at boarding school, I would have a ton of friends, would instantly fit in, be really popular, and also get a boyfriend. Like that's all I wanted. I just <laughs> wanted a boyfriend. I even, I, I chose the schools that I applied to because I was a little geek. I was such a little nerd. So I applied to the top, the top boarding schools possible. But then of those top boarding schools, the way that I, I went through them and decided which to apply to and which not to apply to, because I think my mom said you can apply to, you know, seven, 15 is too excessive. And my parents never knew how I came up with the seven that I applied to. It was all about percentages of boys and girls. And I only <laughs> applied to boarding schools with higher percentages of boys. And the reason I chose Deerfield this is a totally true story, is that they had only in the last three, I think, maybe two or three years transitioned from an all-boys boarding school to a co-ed boarding school, which means their numbers were off the charts. It was like <laughs> 65 or 70 percent boys, and I thought, I will get a boyfriend. Like, you can't not give me a boyfriend when there are that many boys around. It's, it's, Someone it's like, has to it's, like it's, me. It's, it's a mathematical certainty at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I did not get a boyfriend. Mm -mm. No, <laughs> no, it's so sad. No, I get it. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a lot of girlfriends in junior high and high school. I was too, you know, it was too cerebral. I, I, over, yeah. I overthought everything. Nothing. I mean, I, I think I still do, but it was just I couldn't figure it out, you know. And then I would try to make approaches, and it was always awkward. I mean, I totally get that. And yet, there are some kids who have an easy time of it. I, there are some kids who have a really easy time. My niece, and I will not say her name because she would just be mortified if she knew I was talking about her, but she's 14. Um, she's a freshman in high school. She's a knockout. I'm, I'm tall. I'm six, just shy of six feet tall. She is probably an inch away from being my height. Um, she's got this bright red hair, and she's so confident. She's sure of herself without being cocky, and all of all of the girls that I write about in all of like the little girls that exist in my fiction are somehow um, derived from my nieces who I absolutely adore. Um, and, and Olivia definitely, oh, I just said her name, but um, you can't find her. But she, she, I love writing about her and she just terrifies me because of how confident she is. But I'm also really excited to see what kind of person she can become and will become. But she has been having boyfriends for I mean, you know, what, what is a boyfriend when you're 10 or 11 or 12, but now she's got this like nice little guy and they hang out all the time and they hang out with her parents, with my brother and my sister-in-law and, you know, they go do things together. And I, if, he, if my mother had said the word boyfriend to me when I was 14, I would have cried. I would have, I get these hives when I'm really nervous on my neck and my lower face, my jawline, it gets really red. Um, and if my mom used a word like boyfriend or crush, I would have cried and turned instantly red. <laughs> yeah. Was, so, so yes, I was, cerebral. I, was, I remember, okay. I remember there was this girl that kind of liked me and I remember like I, I, I was a freshman in high school and I felt like this is like what you do is you have your girlfriend yeah. come over and like, I think my parents were like worried that I had never, <laughs> you know, or at least I imagined that they were. So I remember I invited this girl over and then, like, we went down to the basement and, like, we made out. And then I remember, like, she had to go home. And so I walked upstairs and I just remember being, like, just, just like, blushing and being, like, feeling bad. You know, seeing my parents and being, like, 
I just went uh, out with a girl. You know what I'm saying? It was like awkward. Yeah. I didn't. They they kind of knew what had gone down, and I didn't like that they knew, and I, we couldn't talk about it, or I couldn't talk about it. Oh, it's it's just the worst. And my my brain definitely got in the way. For instance, so I. I was at boarding school, but then my mother, and this this probably goes back to why I like reading and writing and why it was cool to read in, in my house growing up, but my mother um, taught English for a little while in Maryland to high school students. And so um, I would come home for major holidays and summers, and my mom taught junior and senior boys and girls. And um, she had a couple that I had total crushes on uh, from afar, you know, not I didn't know anything about them at all, but I ended up going on a date with this somehow, miraculously, never having kissed a boy. I think I was a junior in high school. So I go on a date with one of my mom's students, and that already is mortifying. And, and I think my mom knows it's mortifying for me, and, but she's also happy that I'm doing something, something that's like socially normal. So she knows, she knows not to say anything or else I will break out in hives and cry. Yeah. Um, so I go on this like, kind of group date, a safe thing. Like We went to a movie. I think her students smoked pot. Probably I did too, um, which, and I would have been terrified by that, that like crying you know, in, inside, um, worried about disappointing my parents if they found out. But then it came time for us to like split up and somehow I was dropping this boy off at his home and I was going through this weird phase of pretending I was a vegetarian, but I think it was probably more like borderline anorexia, but I was calling it vegetarianism. So I drove this boy home and when we'd all been eating together, he had a cheesesteak. He had eaten a cheesesteak and I could not get that out of my mind. This guy that I had manufactured a crush on from afar and we'd even written handwritten letters to one another, which is before we'd ever kissed. And we never did kiss because I drove him home and he was totally waiting to kiss me. And I would, I would not look at him. It was dark out. And I just stared out the other door, like out the other window, the driver's (laughs) side window. And so I, I really appreciate this girl that you took down to your basement and you guys actually got to make out. I feel like that's, that is the healthy right thing as awful as it is. Like I couldn't even kiss him. Yeah. But, but so terrifying, so terrifying, Terrifying. true terror. And like, you know, sweaty palms. And I mean, I, I'm feeling nervous just talking. About it's it. so, it's so <laughs> gross. Adolescence is the grossest thing in the world. It's so gnarly. God. Okay. And so, uh, but you know, you were kind of, I mean, everyone's angsty to a degree, but you know, you, yeah. had, you had this, uh, the messy divorce and the, you know, going off to boarding school and like that kind of stuff can be difficult, especially for you because you bore the brunt of it being there as a kid. And then, yeah. And then you head into adolescence. Like, did you get to boarding school and have that sort of quintessential like druggy boarding school experience? Oh my God. What is this amazing thing that you're describing? No, <laughs> no, no. I, I, I loved being in the classroom. Um, I, oh God, this is, I can't believe how much I'm revealing right now. No, in fact, freshman year, I went out for field hockey, which is not something in the South that we had at that time. I don't know if it exists in the South now, but I went out for the junior, the JV field hockey team, not having the right shoes, not having the right equipment. And, you know, most of the girls that were going out for this team are from the Northeast, so they've been playing, even even the JV people. Um, And so I was really confused, but somehow I must have thought, oh, this was a sport that I never tried in the South. And so maybe magically, like everything else that I assumed would just be magical. um, Magically, I'll just be really good at this. And I wasn't good at it. Um, So I 
didn't, so during audition, like tryout week, I tried out for that. Um, I think left the practice crying, <laughs> everything you could just add and, and was crying to the end of every sentence. Um, so I left practice crying and I ended up auditioning. I got into acting big time at Deerfield because it was a way to avoid sports, yeah. but this happened. So spring, spring quarter at Deerfield was always a musical and I couldn't sing. So that was the time when if I wasn't willing to be a techie, which I wasn't willing to be a techie, um, you know, the people who build the sets for the plays, then that meant I had to find a sport. So my senior year, this was senior year, not freshman year, my senior year, um, no, maybe it was junior year. It doesn't matter. That's not the interesting part. Um, I needed to find a sport and I came up and this is another sort of, this is part of the entire, uh, my personality, like I come from a sort of family of con men, not real con men, not like we won't ever take anything serious from you, but we are constantly trying to manipulate our way into graduating from high school early or, you know, (laughs) getting a scholarship, even though we don't have the requirements, stuff like that. And we're really, really good at it. Um, So my junior or senior year, I didn't want to do a sport. There was a musical that was happening, so I couldn't do a play. So I told the school that I was allergic to the sun. (laughs) And at the time, they, you know, they were like, sure, sure, Hannah, what what do you want? And I said, I don't know, let's come up with something. And they said, well, there's some, there's some junior girls, or there's some sophomore girls who want to do yoga. So would you, would you be willing to organize that and find a yoga instructor? And I was like, you got it, you got it, I'm on that. And at the time, I thought I was so smart, that I tricked them into this. And now I look back at it and I think they probably all just thought, Oh, it's Hannah. If just give it to her. Cause if otherwise, if you don't give it to her, she's going to keep coming back. Um, and the one time, the one time my yoga group and I would, my whole, I fell asleep. I, didn't, I never did yoga. We would lie on the floor and I would be out just conked. Um, but the one time the girls that I was in this group with wanted to go outside, they were like, let's go outside and do yoga in public. And of course, my first thought was, are you, do you, this is social suicide. What are you, you want to go do yoga? I mean, this was 1996. I was like, you want to go do yoga outside? There's something wrong with you. But of course I couldn't say that. So I, I had to pull my card and I said, I would go outside but I'm allergic to the sun. So we have to stay down in this damp, dank basement and do yoga down here. They hated me. I'm just impressed that you guys were doing yoga that far ahead of the curve. I mean, 1996, like that's way before the uh, explosion, you know? I mean, listen, it was a lot of breath work. There, I mean, there was covering one side of your nose and then covering the other side of the nose. And then I would fall asleep and they would wake me up. <laughs> so there's no telling what they were doing. <laughs> Uh, well, that's, I mean, that same, that just seems like a very sophisticated school that would be offering yoga back then. And then the other thing, you know, that, uh, boarding schools do that I want to ask you about is like, you know, there's a lot of class stuff that happens there. Like, did you feel that like this, like Southern girl coming up to the Northeast and being surrounded by kids that I imagine were like from New York city and you know, I don't know. What, what, what... Oh my gosh. My instant, my joke back then was always, um, Oh, I have two houses too my dad's house and my mom's house because, and, and of course it's such a gross generalization and stereotype, but to me at that time, yeah, they all seemed like, like Kennedy's. I mean, they all looked like Kennedy's acted like Kennedy's. Um, they, they dressed really well. 
I did not dress as well. I mean, my mom had has 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 killer style, had killer style, but I was definitely going through a sort of a very awkward phase. And these girls and boys had parents who had taught them how to disguise their awkward phase. They just looked great. It was nice. so intimidating. But but I think again, like if if you're in that sort of situation, it's a really it's a really neat way to discover who you really are and what you really want to do. And do I want to start wearing that uniform or am I going to gravitate towards the others, you know, in, in quotation marks, am I going to gravitate towards like the day students who were weirdos and I loved them because they were such weirdos, which I did. Um, and I gravitated towards like the radio station and being a DJ, um, and, and the plays, which also attracts the weirdos. So it was a really neat way to get to know myself. I mean, I, I do have some some good friends left over from then um but but it's, but socially it, it was a struggle and and there i was very aware of class and um and aware of oh wait i i thought we were from a good family but these are on another order well that's what i was going to say i mean if you could, if your parents can afford to send you to boarding school they must have been doing all, all right like your folks were doing okay they were they were doing okay i mean the you mentioned money though and affording things and that that just brings up the whole the can of worms that is the divorce and the custody battle and um you know there was always a fight over who was paying for what and i i had a very i had a very privileged um childhood at the same time I now know, because my father filed for bankruptcy in the early 2000s, I, I now know that a lot of money was being spent that didn't exist. And and so that's part of how I managed to get, uh, and, and I was there on scholarship as well, but even, even with scholarship, um, you know, I, everybody knows this, even with scholarship if you're going to boarding school, unless, unless you are getting a full ride, which I certainly was not, it's still ridiculous. I mean, it's like a college tuition now to go to Deerfield. Oh sure, yeah. It's re- I mean, it, the whole thing is absurd. Private school in, in the United States, it's like, but at the same time, it's of another order. And uh, you know, there are there are a few remaining great like public schools uh, in this country that can, you know, at least possibly rival uh, these kinds of private schools academically. But I've talked to more and more people my age or relatively close to my age, um, you know, in recent times. I think it's because I have a kid and we're thinking about school stuff, but. Oh wow! You talk to people about um, their education, and uh, more often than not, when you get down into it, most people I know feel like the best education they ever got, the hardest that school ever was, the most intensely they ever learned was in like junior high and high school, as opposed to college. Um, I I absolutely second that. I I think I I was just talking um, Deerfield. Now that now that I'm quasi kind of famous, um, Deerfield Academy has a real interest in me, which is exciting. Uh, So I've done two separate interviews with their alumni magazine recently. And without without having to fabricate or lie or exaggerate, I was telling them that my junior year U.S. history class at Deerfield was harder than anything I ever experienced at the University of Chicago, just night and day. I don't even. I, I think it's maybe because of the intensity of the schedule, and I mean, I'm imagining at boarding school everything's sort of structured. Um, oh, for sure. And then you get to college, and it's like, oh, two classes on Wednesday. <laughs> you know, I know. Just, I know. Just spaced out. I don't have hours. to go. Right. Exactly. I don't even. Have to You're go. not going to call my parents. Yes. Right. Precisely. Once you have that option, everything goes out the window. It's uh, true. So you went to University of Chicago. I did. And uh, had a good time. Chicago's a great town. I did, but 
so yeah, I graduate. So this is, um, so I graduated from Deerfield early because I petitioned to graduate early because money in my, in my family was coming up a lot and I didn't want anyone to have to pay for my final quarter at Deerfield. So I got to graduate early. Um, and I, I knew that I was going to the university of Chicago. My acceptance there stood just fine. Um, so I got to the university of Chicago, really excited to, you know, start over again and try to be social in a different way, in a new way. And I got there and their orientation, at least back in 1997, their orientation was three weeks long. It was three weeks of um, community service, which was really cool, but then also social events. And I understand why they do it now. I get it because it's such a, an academic community and it does the students there do struggle to be normally social. So I understood why it was happening, but I hated it because I'd just been at boarding school for you know the last four years and, and I knew how to be away from my parents. And suddenly I was with 18 year olds who had never been away from home and all they wanted to do was drink and, and try on different personalities. And, and I hated it. So I got through about a week and a half of orientation and then dropped out. Obviously, I dropped out um, before class had even started. Um, and but, but before I dropped out, I, because I am a geek, I did I did a couple things. I went to the dean and I made sure that I had a standing offer to come back uh, at least for the next semester, possibly for the next year. And he said, absolutely. So I made sure of that. And then I had also applied to a ton of colleges. So I called Johns Hopkins and I called um, St. John's College where my sister was in school. And I asked Johns Hopkins, can I come spring semester? I'm, I'm dropping out of Uni University of Chicago. Do I have an open invitation to come there? And they said yes. And then I called St. John's College and I had not applied to that school, but my sister was there and they gave me the same application that my sister w was able to give them. And this is so, it, it will sound apocryphal, but it's true. I faxed them a list of the last hundred books that I had read. And I think it helped that my sister was already there and she had pulled this stunt with them, but they said, absolutely, you can come be a part of our FEBI class, which is the group of students that enroll, this really small group of students that enroll in January. So I left college, I left the University of Chicago, um, went home, waited tables. Well, that's a lie. I hosted. I hosted. I did not know how to wait tables. But I hosted at this um, crab shack in St. Michael's, Maryland. And then in January, I ended up going to St. John's College, where I spent a year and a half. Um, and I did my freshman and my sophomore year. Absolutely loved it. And then, but I also hated it because I got in, I, I had friends for the first time, really, really awesome friends who turned out to be major losers and drug users. I like them both now, but at the time, I think they were mean girls. I fell in with a mean girl crowd, which if you've never had friends can be really exciting because they're popular. Um, right. and, and they're just like bringing out a different side of you and boys are paying attention to you or, or to me, they were finally. So I associated all of this with my really mean friends. And, uh, but then some bad, bad, stuff went down and I had to get away from them because I realized how toxic it was and like okay, totally so wait, what happened like were, were you doing drugs or was it no god no the, the moral to you can I wish I wish if you ask me again I wish it would change <laughs> there are no drugs ever get done in this story like maybe in a year when I move out to LA I'm going to become a coke fiend <laughs> or something um which is like what my mom still says, Hannah, if you move out to L.A., I make her sound like my grandmother. I love this. If you move out to L.A., don't 
do cocaine. <laughs> um, she doesn't Wait, sound a thing you, like that. Are you going to move to L.A.? Is that no, all? no. That was like that was this fantasy sort of for when we were not quite sure if we were coming to Kentucky or, you know, if we were going to stay in academia. We were we have a good friend who's out there right now writing screenplays and um, writing for television and making tons of money and just having the time of his life. And and so we were like, yes, we're going to go do this crazy other thing that isn't us at all. Um, we're academics. We're both academics and we both love teaching. But but the horrible thing that happened was like a series of things. There there was a lot of drinking, which is not a problem. Um, I drink a lot still, but there was a lot of drinking and these girls, I took, oh man, this is going to make me sound so privileged. Oh my God, but I'm not. I really, I promise. Um, I t- my father, my biological father has this house down in the Bahamas and in between the summer after my freshman year of college at St. John's, I took my best two girlfriends that I'd only known since February. So we, we've known each other four months. Um, I took my best two girlfriends, each of their best friends or each of their boyfriends who were also best friends. And then my boyfriend, cause I finally had one. Yay for me. Hey, hey. Um, so I took, but, Oh, but I'm not having sex with him, of course, because the sex is like sex is many years away from me still. But these girls, these girls are older because they've both been to another college together, dropped out and then come. They've known each other since like eighth grade. So these are best friends from the same small town in middle America who have done everything together. And they've been having sex for decades, even though they haven't been old. Like they're not that old. Yeah, but the, but thing so is, we're... the thing is, too, is that when you're when you're friends with two people who are best yeah. friends like that, like. You can be their friends, but you'll never be at that level. You're you'll, always- exactly. Yeah. And what I was, I was the girl with a house in the Bahamas and we were, and I said, let's go on this vacation. It's free. Um, my, I, in fact, like my father can even fly you guys down and I, you know, I'm going to pay for my own plane and you guys will ride on this private uh, jet that my father, again, keep in mind, con man, con man status. Like he had traded somebody for access to their plane, something that who knows what it was, not drugs, nothing illegal, but like favors were always happening. So I was able to fly them down on, on this private jet. I took a commercial airline in and we all got there at the same, roughly the same time. And we're going to stay for one week, me and my boyfriend, not having sex, the four of them having sex everywhere. (laughs) They're, they're all smokers. My boyfriend and I don't smoke, um, but we're all drinkers. So it's, it's fine, but very quickly. So this comes back to the idea of class, like at Deerfield, I was totally middle, middle class. In the Bahamas, it became apparent that they thought I was some sort of super upper class elitist, and they were going out of their way, the two girls especially, to play up their lower middle income status. And it wasn't even theirs. It was their parents. But they were really going out of their way to talk about, oh, my God, like, look, Hannah's father has a slave. And by slave, they were pointing out this awesome Bahamian who works down there, who my father paid, who was a friend of mine, actually. He was older than me, but I knew his sons. And, and I'd, 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 I never spent a ton of time in the Bahamas, but I knew this guy pretty well, and I liked him a lot. And they were treating him so terribly and I was incredibly embarrassed and they were they were smoking outside on the sand and leaving their butts in the sand which is just so um, you know incorrect with how you're supposed to be treating nature down there and so I would be up in the morning picking up the butts and sometimes this guy who was my father's friend 
and come over because his, his parents live next door. He'd come over in the morning and help me pick up butts as well. And I would just be apologizing. And I think they caught wind of me apologizing to him for their behavior. And then, and then whatever sort of like weird, whatever weird tension they were feeling, probably they were having insecurities of their own. It just, it all started focusing on me. And it was all about like Hannah's so repressed. She doesn't do this. Like she doesn't even have sex. And, and then it was, it was just so uncomfortable. So we got back from the Bahamas and we're barely speaking to one another. And then after that class resumed and it was, it was like gossip central lies, things that things I had never even thought were being said about me. People were, I mean, it was, it was like fourth grade all over again because I'd had a really terrible experience in fourth grade with girls as well. And so I, I just didn't know how to react. I had my, my, my friends were just they were gone. They, they were, they were the most hateful people. And they were, they were telling lies about how, how much money was happening in the Bahamas. And they were lying about um, my father. And by the way, this is when all of this is happening is right when apparently bankruptcy proceedings were starting for my father. Yeah, and I know that what is, what is he now, doing? what did he do? He, it's, I never really understood what he did. Um, but what I always told friends when I was little, he, he, sold machines that made other machines. So there were these Japanese machines um, made by a company called Marisiki, and he would sell these big million-dollar machines that he kept in a warehouse in Atlanta. There was like a showroom, um, and people would, you know, people would fly in from Japan. They'd fly in from Alabama. They'd fly in from anywhere, Chicago, and they would look at these machines, and then they would buy them. And one time, this was the most that I ever understood about what he did, but one time in the warehouse, he had a machine that made uh, rackets, like tennis rackets. And that was the most I ever grasped what he did. But they were these enormous Japanese machines. And he, so he, he was capable of making a ton of commission and having lots of cash on hand at a time. But then the cash would be gone. And, and meanwhile, he had married another woman. They'd had a child. Um, so there was a lot of money in many different places. And it just all caught up to him. You know, the spending caught up and um, their lifestyle caught up to them. And he's a totally, you know, he's night and day, a completely different dude now. I mean, he went through bankruptcy um, and he discovered Sam's Club and uh, and liberalism. So it's in many ways, it's like the best thing that ever happened to him. And and he got out of Atlanta and he lives in Asheville now. And um, he, he's actually married to his third wife and he has a different child with her, a girl who I think she's 10 now, maybe 11. She might've just turned 11. Um, that's a weird age to try to figure out what, what a girl is, but, um, they're super happy and they're just, they're hippies down in, you know, aging hippies down in Asheville and who he would never, I would never have thought 20 years ago that his life could be like this now, but he's, he's just a totally different person. And we all are. I'm just, I'm just relieved that he's still with us. Cause your, your book is about uh, a woman who learns that her, <laughs> her strranged father has killed himself. So I was sort of dreading that story, but that's not the case. That's good news. No, <laughs> no, but I can, I can't, I can make it sad and tell you that his, my father's father, um, who I had a very uneasy relationship, not like there was anything that ever specifically went wrong. It's just, I was never a favorite grandchild and he always made me uncomfortable. Lots of racism. Um, sure. But he, uh, he killed himself. He did shoot himself. And, um, and, I, and that was probably the genesis 
of of the book, you know, thinking about it, and and it was it was on my dad's mind a lot, and we talked about it a lot, and obviously um, it was on my mind because anytime anybody you know, and especially anyone you're related to, um, takes their own life, I think you you have to have a moment where you step back and say, who else in my family is capable of this? Is it was it environment or was it genetics and am I capable of this? You know, it's a, it's a very sobering question to ask yourself. Um, and so I was just in thinking about it a lot. I thought, Oh, well, uh, let me write a funny book about it. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously this, I've been wanting to write something funny. So clearly it's going to be about suicide. Well, you know, it's a, it's a super, I think it's like the, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to sort of measure these things out, but it's a very difficult way to lose someone. There's a lot of mystery. And then there's also a lot of fear uh, there is. I've lost people, to, you know, a good friend to suicide, and so I get it, um, at least to an extent. Not a family member, thank goodness. Yeah. Um, well, but a friend. I mean, this this was a family member who I wasn't close to. I, you know, a friend is somebody automatically that you're close to. I think. I think it. I think you probably know even more about it than I do. Well, yeah. Well, no, but it's just it's just the the whole point. And I've had I had a uh, an author on this show that wrote a whole book about suicide and like the how it can be contagious and how. Um, you know, it just, it really unlocks a lot of stuff inside of people. It's something you sort of have to reckon with. Well, there's something, and this, this is one of those statements that I, I, I say with, like with so many qualifications, even before I've said it, but there is this sort of like, it's like this, this mystery to it that is like kind of alluring and, I mean, we're all, you know, we're all so fascinated by it, like, because it is so unnatural that there's something sort of this, I'm not even, no, I won't even say it because, but there's something like wrongly, absolutely wrongly, like sexy about it. But I don't mean sexy in the way that we use the word on a daily basis or an hourly basis. I mean, there's something like immediately just powerful about it. It gets the attention. You know, it, it automatically, like everybody looks at it sexy like that. Um, right. So there's, it, it takes over and it's, it's all consuming. It is powerful. The minute, you know, if you know someone who knows someone who has just committed suicide, there's like, it sends, there's a quiet in the room. There is an automatic, like you're think, it, it just, it sends people, the people who are alive, it sends them to a different place. You know, it just makes us, it just makes us, think and pause and consider things, even if it's just for five seconds, we look at the world differently. You know, when Robin Williams, we all heard about Robin Williams and, and everybody, everyone just was like a little bit more somber that day. And it wasn't like sad somber necessarily. It was like, Oh, what does that mean for me? Right. And like, it doesn't mean anything for us, right? But it does. Right. Solipsistic is maybe the better thing. Like sexy is wrong, but like there's something we want to make it about us even when it's not. Well, but there's like, it's like, and this, I'm going back to this conversation I had, um, you know, there's this book called stay and it's like about, there's like a social compact. Like when somebody takes their own life, especially somebody high profile like that, like, uh, after Marilyn Monroe died and I know there's some like controversy, yeah. whether or not that was a suicide, but assuming it was like an, you know, an intentional drug overdose, like suicide spiked. Like there are many instances where, is that right? Yeah. Because it's, oh, you know, wow. when, when somebody does it like that, it almost, cause I, you know, I think there are plenty of people in the world, or at least some people in the world, who are super sunny, dispositionally speaking. Yeah. And like, yeah. it would never occur to them. And they have like a really fortunate existence, like genetically and otherwise, and it would never occur to them to take their own life. But I think for a lot of people, um, maybe the majority, 
you know, life is tough. And at some point it sort of crosses your mind like, you know, I, I could not deal with any of this. You know, I could, right. just, I could just go. I mean, it's an, it's a human, it's a natural thing to, to think about to a degree as a human being. And it's only in these rare instances where somebody kind of like acts on that, that impulse. But when somebody does, I think it brings that all up and you start to go to yourself like, Oh God, you know, this is a possibility. And it, you know, it just, like you say, it, it sends a quiet into the room and it makes people kind of look inward and reckon with that sort of stuff. With you t- you're, you're, you're right. And especially when it is somebody like Marilyn Monroe or Robin Williams, I think, you know, people who, who have fans in, in places that, you know, they can't even imagine if, if somebody you respect and look up to and you've thought about and you've marveled about all your life, if they're suddenly capable and willing, then in, in some ways I can see for a certain type of person for them to think, well, if they, if they did it, maybe it's okay if I do it too. Right. It gives you, yeah, it's like permission or something and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's contagious behavior. So it's like, it's a good, yeah. it's a good thing, I think, to be, re- to recognize that. Like, I think that's part of the solution is like understanding that, um, and talking about it and talking about it and understanding that it's contagious. And then, you know, if you're a person who, um, you know, and I don't know if you, when you investigated this stuff within yourself, if you thought to yourself, like, you know what, I could be a person potentially who has this capability or if you thought the opposite, but. Um, you know, you gotta, if you're depressive, a lot of writers are, and if you've got, um, that darkness or whatever, it's something you do have to take care of, you know? It's true. You do. I, I, I'm happy to report that I am such an egomaniac that it would be impossible for me to kill myself. (laughs) Like I I really, there's part of, there's a part of my brain that believes, well, if I kill myself, then the world that I'm living in obviously ends too, because I created it. Um, (laughs) Like there's something wrong with me. I could never, I could never ever do it. So if, if, if I ever die and people say it's suicide, it's a lie. Unless, <laughs> unless it's a living will type situation. If my, if my body goes, but my brain's still there, like take me out. Right. Yeah. That's sort of how I am, you know? And, uh, you just, I think as soon as you start to like have clear thoughts about your, uh, your obligations to people who care about you and that you care about, I mean, it's kind of a no brainer, but I guess people, yeah. people lose sight of that in the darkness. Absolutely. And I, and I get it. I mean, I, I am not one to judge it. I don't, you know, I don't want to say I condone it, but I, I totally, the older I get, the more I understand just about everything. Yeah. Yeah. Life's tough. Um, and you've been through a lot. I mean, your family, like that family stuff growing up as a kid and, um, you know, all the money stuff, like that's, that's difficult stuff to process at any age, but especially when you're coming of age. Uh, and yet you seem to be pretty resilient, you know, and you have a good sense of humor, which I think is, um, Maybe a byproduct of those difficulties, but also, but, but maybe also like, but it's also great armor against those yeah. and any other subsequent difficulties. You know, like I'm a big believer in that. So, um, let's get into your twenties. Like you get out okay. after the Bahamian, mm-hmm. night, the Bahamian nightmare. Debacle. Yeah. <laughs> so I, so the Bahamian, this is, this is what's crazy. The, the boy that I took down there as, as my boyfriend, um, I ended up staying with him for about five and a half years, and that was my first boyfriend. And I think, I think that is, um, he was a totally decent person. But we, you know, as as young people, we should not have been allowed to spend five and a half years because um, by the end of it, I think we both hated each other so much, but we had this sort of sibling type love for one another that 
neither of us wanted to, could be the one to pull the plug and like really hurt the other person. So I spent in, into my mid twenties with, with my first boyfriend and everything that you can imagine that goes along with having a first boyfriend and not getting started with all the physical stuff until later. So I had not done a lot by the time I finally broke up with my first boyfriend when I was 25. So it was like when I got to grad school, um, I was did you go second. Nuts? Did you go nuts? I went a little bit nuts. I went a little <laughs> bit nuts. Um, because cool. I was, yeah, it was, it was, it was like, I got my, my teen, I got my, I got year 18 out of the way. I got, I got to, I got to have fun and I didn't feel bad about it. Um, and it was really, it was very, very useful. And so I, I was about, I was single for about a year and a half, maybe two years, um, and just dating a lot and waiting tables and writing stories. And I was, I, I definitely felt more like, a local um, in Charlottesville than I felt. I mean, I loved being associated with the university. I absolutely love that I went to an MFA program. I, I love that I went there and I got so much out of it. But by the right, time at, I graduated, at the University of Virginia. Yeah, the University of Virginia, which is like where all of my education and social experiences like finally clicked. Like everything I'd been waiting for since lower school, I finally got. I had friends that I liked. I was social. Um, you know, I was still a weirdo, and still, if I went out and drank too much, I'd. I'd and I, the first thing I used to do on Saturday mornings in grad school was wake up and just start writing apology emails. Like, hey, <laughs> so I don't know what I did, but I'm guessing I shouldn't have. So apologies. In in advance for whatever I might have done. Why? So I got really. What, what do you like? You, when you drink, what do you, what happens? So you, you seem like a happy drunk. I, I think I am, but like maybe push the boundaries, like because I'm I am I'm happy I am a happy drunk, and I'm I think I'm a really fun drunk, but. Probably you can tell from the way that apparently nothing seems off limits with what I'm saying right now. I think when I get drunk, I forget that other people might still have boundaries and <laughs> might not be interested in being as um, forthcoming as I am. And so, and I, I tend to say, like, I will, I am someone who, now that I am out of my awkward phase, um, I like to, whenever I sense awkwardness, I like to point it out right away. Like, let's talk about this. So it's weird that we're just sitting here right now. Are you as uncomfortable as I am? I think this is awkward, right? Like, so I'm, I'm one of those people that wants to talk through it. Uh, see, I, um, see, I love that. Like, that's like, that's, that to me is less awkward. And it's like a relief. Yeah. It's a relief. It's a relief. I just like, why not just talk about this? And uh, I also have uh, a problem with people who have too many boundaries. Like you got to get over your stuff and talk about stuff. You, and, and, and I was also really, I was just coming out and I feel like I have a much better balance of this now. But so, so I have my, my first year at grad school that's like just sort of partying and, and being fun and doing just reading and writing and like discovering, holy cow, there's a chance that I might actually get to do what I love most in life for a living, which is, which is reading and writing and teaching. So I'm in this really awesome, happy place, but I'm I'm probably I probably am annoying to be around at times um, because I am discovering things that other people discovered before me and you know and I'm discovering boys and dating and stuff like that so the people who are in my program who are older I can see that I might have been a bit of a handful and you know m might have wanted to be the center of attention too often but they they handled that my second year though 
my adopt my stepfather, the man who married my fa- my mother, um, he adopted me, and he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, stage four, advanced, stage four B, my second year, um, just just as my second year was starting so, uh, of grad school, and I didn't drop out, um, but I also only lived an hour and a half, two hours away um, from where my parents, my mom and my stepfather, were living. So that that sickness and watching him die um, was really, really difficult. And so now imagine like me as newly liberated from this relationship that had gotten really toxic and caustic. I'm drinking more than ever. I'm hanging out with townies and locals. Um, I, I think I became, and then my, and then meanwhile, this man who I loved like no one's business who, who really taught me not to be the privileged brat that I was being raised to be. He got me out of that and, and really taught me to look at the world and examine things and question things. Um, Wait, was he a boyfriend or a a man? Oh, this is my stepfather, my stepfather. Um, So he's dying. And, and so every, every week during the day, like I spend three days at my parents' house um, with my mom, like watching this man die, like shrivel up and die in front of us. And then I was spending four days um, back at the University of Chicago or University of Virginia in grad school. And I would wait tables um, at night and I would go to class during the day. And then at night um, after waiting tables, I just get drunk. And, and I was, I definitely used his, his, uh, his sickness as a way to act really badly and just not care. Like I was somebody who cared so much for 25, 26, 27 years. I was so cared what other people thought and I was tired of it. I was just so tired of it. And so for about a year, I think I, I pushed as many people away as I could. And I think this is very common for people who are, who are suffering and who are going through, you know, who are watching somebody die and who go through the other side of cancer, you know, watching the cancer patient. Um, I think this is probably, probably pretty common behavior. There's nothing unique here. But so there was a year of just acting really poorly and badly and, and, and just not wanting to care and really not caring. And, and then he died. And and then there was a little bit, maybe more bad acting, but, but I started to come out of it. And, um, you know, it's really aware of, of wanting to, wanting him to be proud of me. You know, I don't, I don't believe in heaven, but I do believe in, in honoring someone. And I, I wanted to do, I wanted to make of my life something, um, more than he got to have. I mean, he died at 56 and I, I hope I'm not going to die at 56, but I thought he didn't get any more time and he should have gotten more time. And I'm going to take the time that I have left and I'm going to a not care what other people think, but also B, be mindful of other people's feelings and C, try to have fun and D, you know, just have a happy life and, and have a good life and, and try for the thing that I love, which is writing um, and do whatever I have to do to in order to get it, you know, even if it means waiting tables. And so so there was like this really rocky uh, this rocky phase for me, but it was really necessary. And I think I came out of that like a very bizarrely well-rounded, finally at, at age 30, um, a well-rounded human being. I can see that. I can see that. And then like, uh, it sounds like you were really close to your stepdad. I mean, he went so far as to adopt you. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, at, yeah. at, 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 a, at a late age, right? You were, you yeah, were... He, he, well, so I got a pop. We called him pops. Um, pops came into the picture when I was pretty young. My mom remarried him when I was about eight or nine and that's who she moved to Maryland with when I went to boarding school. So he'd been around through a lot of the custody battles. Uh. Um, 
and he, so he'd been there for that, but he didn't adopt me until he was diagnosed. And my sister and I both, um, she's older, I've already said that, but it was important to both of us that we wanted to give him something that, um, you, you know, that, that we, that, that would mean something to him while he was still aware and, um, but before it had gotten too late. So very early on in the diagnosis, um, we, we asked him to adopt us sort of as a, as a culmination of the 18 years that we'd spent with him. And it was, it was a really difficult thing because it meant my sister and I had to call our biological father who is still very much alive and is very much our father. And we had to call him and say, you know, we love you, but you do have this other life that you've been living with this, you know, this other wife and these small children and we've been peripheral and you, we need you to sign this piece of paper that says you are not our father so that this other man can adopt us. And it was, it was a really heartbreaking thing for both of us to have to do. And it was heartbreaking for my father, but, and I think this says something about what kind of man my biological father is he he did it he signed it and because he knew I think he knew that we needed it and he knew that pops needed it and he knew also that he got to spend more time with us that that he wasn't going anywhere yet so yeah yeah wow that's heartbreaking and sweet it was it was really sweet and it's also I mean you know you go through these kinds of losses everybody goes through them eventually and like yeah you know they're horrible and Uh, you know that's uh that's pretty obvious but they also you know in a strange way give you a lot they teach you a lot and uh you know you you know if you could go back and switch things up obviously you would but um it did i mean do you think that it made you you said it made you more well-rounded or you came out of it with a you know a more more well-rounded person at 30 but um it also you know the depth or whatever that you gain from loss uh as a human being hopefully uh, does find its way into your work as an artist, yeah. inevitably, it does. It does, and and that's, you you kind of you stopped yourself from what you were saying. Like, and you would go back and change things if you could, obviously. Um, and and I th- there's this game that my husband and I play. Um, it's probably not healthy, but it's probably the reason that we've we've been together, not married, but we've been together about seven years. Um, and but there's this game that we and we never run out of things to talk about. And one of probably one of the reasons is there's this game that we sometimes play where it's like the top five things. And it'll be okay, top five movies that um, you've seen but you wish you could unsee because they were so beautiful and you wish you could encounter them again for the first time. So it could be something as lightweight as that to top five terrible experiences that you wouldn't undo because they've made you who you are. And the only experience that I think I would undo is Pop's death because it's, it's not, it was his. And I, it's, I, I just wish that he didn't have to do it. And so I, of course I would undo that in a heartbeat, but the divorce, I don't think so. Like the, the seven year custody battle, I think I have to keep it because I don't know that I would be who I am. And I certainly don't think I would be the writer I am or even a writer if I hadn't gone through those things. Sure. So, so, and, and loss, you know, the, the pain and loss, um, the pain of losing pops is, is definitely part of what I write about and and who I am as a writer. But again, that's, I would artistically, I would give up whatever I gained from that if it meant that he got to have um, the the happy full life that he, that he might've had. But um, since he doesn't, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the fact that I've been able to channel something quasi positive out of his early departure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a noble thing. I mean, that's about as good as you can do, you know? Yeah. 
Like what else? Something like that happens. You make good art out of it. Well, like what? What's better than that? I mean, I, right. I, I mean, plant a tree. <laughs> <laughs> Planting a tree sounds okay. Yeah, That's no, right. like a park bench or something. I mean, well, see- no, I mean, like the real. But here's the thing, right? Like the real, the real other, the real other possibility is um, when when you experience loss is if you let it take you the other way and you decide. And I'm sure you know people like this, but um, you 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 let yourself become indulgent, self-indulgent. And well, I miss that person so much that I, it's not even worth living. So I'm going to go drink myself under a tree, this tree that I just made or this park bench <laughs> I just right. built. This, um, poor, this poor young sapling that I just planted. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I certainly did that for a little while, but then it was very important to me to sort of remember, yeah, but part of what, part of what makes life so special. And I'm going to, I'm about to sound preachy and I don't mean to at all, especially for somebody who's not a spiritual person, but for me, part of what makes life so special is that it can end at any minute. You know, it, it is, it is so not a guarantee. Right. So right. we might as well enjoy it as much as we can. And you, and you, like you said, no spiritual stuff like that didn't, you don't have any kind of sense like that way or nothing. No, I don't. I don't. I, I envy I, kind of, I kind of envy people who do um, because there seems a sort of, um, solace and contentment uh, sometimes there. I see it in people who have it. But no, I think for me, the turmoil of um, thinking that there is there is no point. And, um, you know, it's I like the daily struggle of and the daily question of what, but then why do we exist? And what does it mean? And, and what are we doing here? I, I'm definitely introspective in that manner. And I like to think about it. But no, I, there's there's nothing. That's that's silly. I think that makes I think that takes away from the meaning that we all get to have while we're here. Well, I kind of agree. I mean, I, it's like it's tough because you start to like these words are really uh, difficult. You know, when you start to delineate between spiritual, oh, totally versus, spiritual versus religious, or right, uh, right. I mean, I think what you're saying is that like you don't ha- you don't participate in any sort of organization, no, um, and you're not like lighting incense. Uh, maybe, no, maybe you are. but like at the same time, no, you, you, you are you are on some level aware of and paying uh, credence to the grand mystery of it all in your own way, and and yeah, you, and, you because- rec- and you re- and you embrace the beauty of life. You have to, right? I mean, I am in awe of the fact that this gets to exist, and I am in awe of the fact that when when we die, we are like a blip on a blip on a blip is how small the, you know, the hundred years are that, um, you know, that we've been here or the 70 years or the 50 years. My husband was just in here before this interview began. And because I am in an academic office, I have, I have all of my Greek books with me and all of my um, tragedies. And, and I also have like all of these different Bibles. Um, And so he had picked up a paperback Bible and was just reading through it. And he said, well, this is ridiculous. This is just ridiculous. (laughs) And he read me, he read me a line about, um, the, the sons of God were born and they looked around and then the son, the daughters of God were born and the sons looked around and the daughters were beautiful and they married whoever they wanted. <laughs> and, and then there's this line about how we live um, and humans lived for 120 years. And my husband stopped and said, what happened to that? Yeah, Where'd no those shit. 120 years go? <laughs> yeah, life was good back then. <laughs> yeah. I've got this book that tells me. <laughs> Oh man! Well, uh, it's been such uh, such fun talking with you. You're a great guest uh, and just a great conversationalist. And I congratulate you on all the success you've had. 
uh, writing, you know, and especially with Reunion. Uh, and I wish you well on, uh, you know, as it makes its way further out into the world. And I also wish you well on whatever comes next. Well, thank you, Brad. And maybe, um, maybe we could do this again. And next time I could ask questions. I'm very curious about you. I, I think you should have to sit on the other side of it and <laughs> answer all of these questions. But I, I had a blast. I really appreciate it. Uh, right, folks. There you go. That is Hannah Petard. What a great guest. Go get her novel. It's called Reunion. It is available now from Grand Central Publishing. You can find her online. Her website is hannahpetard.com. And uh, her Twitter handle is at Hannah Petard. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget, this program has an app. This podcast has its own official app. It's free. It's available for your iPhone. It's available for your Android device. Uh, It's the Other People app. You should have it. It's the easiest way to listen to this program. You get the app onto your device for free, and then uh, you'll have the most recent 50 episodes of the podcast waiting for you, free, right there. You can uh, stream them right there from the app. You can download them to listen to offline if you're lacking a Wi-Fi connection. You can favorite your favorite episodes. And then best of all, best of all, uh, you can sign up for premium right there within the app if you want to stream the full archives and get access to everything. It's cheap. You do it right there within the app. You get the app. You sign up for premium within the app. takes two seconds. Support the show. Get access to everything. It's a good idea. If you would like to uh, email me, let me know what you're thinking. My address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. I like hearing from you guys. And you know what? Uh, speaking of uh, the interview, uh, the last thing Hannah said to me about me being on the other end of the uh, microphone getting a... Uh, or you know what I'm saying, me, me being on the other side of the table, as it were, subjecting myself to the kinds of uh, kind of interview that I do with uh, other authors. I'm not opposed to that. I know that, that sometimes podcasters do that. They flip the script. I just feel like I, you know, I'm pretty forthcoming in the uh, monologues and in the interviews, and uh, people know, people who have listened know a lot about me. If you interviewed me, wouldn't it just be uh, overkill? I don't know. And and who would do the interview? Maybe I should have Hannah do the interview. Please remember that Adolf Hitler typed with two fingers and that Calvin died of hemorrhages of the lungs. Uh, I hope that's not Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> that's it for now. Uh, thanks again to Hannah Petard. Go get her novel and uh, maybe get another one and give it away as a gift. I appreciate you guys listening. I hope you have a nice day. Go see Gone Girl. Go see Birdman. You know, I know it's hard to make a buck. These people need people to go see their movies. I'm not trying to shit on somebody's movie. I'm very sensitive about that. I shouldn't be. Check them out. I mean, really what I want is I want you to see them, and I want you to write me, tell me what you thought. So I can figure out what I think. I don't know how critics do it. How do you pretend to have an opinion? <laughs> How does anybody have any like really rock solid opinions of anything? Or almost anything? I will say mayonnaise is disgusting. I feel pretty solid about that. 
Eggs. Eggs are gross. Fucking scrambled eggs. That's so nasty. <laughs> People love that shit, man. They love that. They love that embryo. Whatever. I can't get down with that. I don't know what's going on with that. Uh, the kind of snotty consistency. and So I have some opinions, I guess. But opinions of art. Stridency. I fear, I fear sounding strident. You get paid a lot of money in this culture to have uh, strong opinions. Maybe that's my problem. Know what you think. Pretend that you know what you think. Put on that air. People love it. They'll follow you. Mayonnaise is fucking gross, man. <laughs> <laughs>